Good morning. Well, friends, it is a real delight to be here with all of you this morning and sing the Lord's praises together. What a joy. I bring you greetings from the elders and the congregation at Grace Evangelical Church in Sharjah. And let me just say that this is truly a privilege for me to be here and to bring God's word to you today. I want to invite you to turn with me this morning in your copy of God's word to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus. And it is my prayer for all of us that as we look at what this passage teaches us about our great God, as we trace his handiwork and identify his divine fingerprints, we would come to know and experience his divine comfort. Friends, when there are dark clouds looming over our heads, when we feel overwhelmed with sorrow and pain, when evil seems to abound and surround us, I pray that this truth would be the pillow that we rest our troubled heads upon. And what is that truth? It's this, that God has provided for us a Savior, and it is His hand that leads His people. Brothers and sisters, God providentially cares for His people because He has good, redeeming purposes for them. So let me now call your attention to Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, and we'll look at the text all the way from there to chapter 2, verse 10. Exodus 1, 22, all the way to 2, verse 10. And let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. So please pray with me. Father, we confess that so often our hearts are led astray in the midst of affliction and trial. Our sin unsettles us. The evil around us disheartens us, and we so easily forget that the one who ordains all things does so with nail-pierced hands. Father, remind our forgetful and weary hearts from this passage to look at the triumph of the cross, to be in awe of your Spirit's work, your ongoing work of sanctification in your people and to hope in the glory to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to introduce you to a friend from the past. This man had multiple childhood infirmities that he never grew out of. He struggled to sleep at night and his eyesight was very poor because he read by candlelight. His wife died less than nine years after they were married, and he had no children since his wife was unable to have children after a single miscarriage. He had many critics who were a constant source of grief to his soul. He suffered from chronic asthma, migraine, pleurisy, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, gallstones, severe arthritis, and frequent influenza accompanied by raging fevers. On top of all of that, John Calvin was constantly harassed by the city council 
who tried to control his church. And he constantly felt the pressure and demands of an incessant workload. See, Calvin was a towering and influential theologian and pastor in his time, but he was also a profoundly afflicted man. And yet in all of that, he knew that the God who knows all things, who ordains all things, who orchestrates all things, who superintends all things, is the very same God who provided for him a Savior. And so he was content to not know the reasons for all his afflictions. Calvin himself once said, Thou, O Lord, thou bruises me. It is enough for me to know that it is your hand. Friends, let me ask you this question. What gives you comfort in the midst of trial and sorrow? How do you sustain your faith when everything around you seems to be disintegrating and nothing seems to make any sense? Well, brothers and sisters, I want to offer you that same confidence that Calvin had by asking you to do something that the psalmist often suggests that we do, to meditate on God's works of old, to trace his redeeming hand, to be reminded from Scripture that no matter how chaotic the world may seem, he has provided for us a Savior in whom we can find rest. See, God, our Father, is working out His salvation purposes for us, and He is changing us. He is restoring that image that has been defaced and tarnished by the fall. He's making us more like His Son, and He's bringing us closer to glory. Oh, friends, God is very much in our lives, quietly working through the scenes, through the job losses, through harsh governments, through unjust employers, through miscarriages, through failures, through the debts of loved ones. He's doing all of this so that we might see much of our sin, but also that we might see much more of Christ our Redeemer and be anchored in Him. So don't let your faith be shaken. God wants you to hear that this morning as we look at this account in Israel's history. In God's providential care for us. He wants us to see that he has provided for us a savior. So I don't have a three-point message for you this morning. I have a one-point message, and this is the point. In all of God's providential care for us, he wants us to see that he has provided for us a savior. And I hope you can see that as we walk through this story. So look at the text with me. Here's what was happening to the people of Israel. Now, the book of Exodus tells us the story of how God saves his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt so that they can worship him and serve him. God intervenes and works in the lives of the people of Israel because he's faithful to his covenant promises that he made earlier with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you remember the story, God saved Abraham by grace and he made him a promise that he would multiply his offspring and make them into a great nation, so that eventually, through his offspring, blessing would come to the nations. But Abraham was also told that his offspring would come to dwell as strangers in a, in a, in a foreign land. He was told that they would be afflicted for 400 years, but that God would eventually bring judgment on their oppressors and then deliver them and bring them to a good land, to the land of Canaan. 
Now, friends, when we put the whole Bible together, we begin to see that this deliverance becomes the paradigm or the pattern to describe our rescue, our salvation from Satan, sin, and death through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the long-promised singular offspring of Abraham, of Israel, through whom all the nations will be blessed. And so we find ourselves at that moment in redemptive history where Israel is being afflicted by Pharaoh in Egypt, just as God had said earlier to Abraham. But strangely enough in the story, we find that Pharaoh's oppression only caused the Israelites to multiply more. What Pharaoh meant for evil, God meant for good. See, God had brought them there to fulfill his redeeming promises for the world. He was fulfilling the covenant promises that he had made to uh, the patriarchs. And in keeping with those promises, he was blessing Israel. He was causing them to multiply. You see, their suffering was only furthering God's redeeming purposes. And when Pharaoh realized that his oppressive work did not put a dent in the Israelite population boom, he then decided to quietly get rid of all the male babies. And so he recruited two midwives. You see that in chapter 1 of Exodus. But the midwives did not kill those babies because the text tells us that they feared God more than Pharaoh. And so eventually Pharaoh said, enough is enough. No more secret baby killing strategies. I'm Pharaoh and I can do whatever I want. And my people better do as I say. And so Pharaoh cooks up this satanic plan. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. And so a notice goes out to every Egyptian citizen. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now friends, the Nile River was considered to be the life stream of Egypt. It was their umbilical cord. That's where the land got its nourishment from. The Nile was also associated with several Egyptian gods. And so it was considered to be divine, a symbol of life. And Pharaoh here decrees that these newborn baby boys are to be thrown into the Nile, to be offered up to the Nile gods by the people themselves. Do you see what he's doing? He takes his wicked plan and he turns it into a religious event. This was a state-sponsored purge of the Israelite population by the Egyptians. Now, can you imagine the fear, the terror that would have struck the hearts of every Israelite family when they heard that decree? Just think about that. Can you imagine not knowing when your neighbor or some random person off the street is going to break into your house, snatch your baby from your arms, and then toss them into the river to be drowned and eliminated. And there would be no place for you to go and seek justice. We can only imagine what the death toll would have been like. We can only imagine the cries of those mothers as they watch their children being snatched from them and killed because of national policy. What could be more sinister and diabolical than a decree like that? Now, how can a text like this turn our thoughts towards God 
who is our Savior. Think of what Pharaoh is saying here. Every son cast into the river, throw into the water. Imagine if you were an Israelite. How would you hear those words? Think of an Israelite reader after the Exodus, having been delivered, reading this account. How would he have heard those words? Every son cast into the river. Well, he would be able to look at those words and see the great irony in it. Because friends, that's what God would do to Pharaoh and his armies. Can you see how Pharaoh has sealed the fate of Egypt by his own words? The very words that Pharaoh uses to exterminate God's people, God will turn them around and make them a reality for him and the people of Egypt. Soon, a day would come when many sons of Egypt will be drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. God would do this, and it would become a religious event, but not for the Egyptians, but for the people of Israel. See, God would accomplish this by sending them a Savior, one who would deliver his people out of Egypt from the clutches of Pharaoh. Friends, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Psalm 33, verse 10. See, Pharaoh thinks he's in control. But any liberated Israelite would have been able to look back and see. And we who know the story of Exodus, we can see that God's really the one in control here. And God is the one who will have his way. Even in the midst of persecution and turmoil, God was raising up and preserving a deliverer. Moses, right under Pharaoh's nose. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. That's odd, isn't it? I mean, we've just heard about this horrifying, horrifying decree. Pharaoh saying, cast every son into the river. And you would think that the writer would then start describing all the panic and the confusion that followed and, and perhaps you would expect to now hear that the God who was with the Israelites, blessing them in the midst of suffering, causing them to multiply, God would now show up. I mean, this would be a good time, wouldn't it? I mean, it can't get any worse than this. Now would be perfect timing. But instead, we read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Who changed the channel? I mean, this looks like a different show. And friends, that's the point, isn't it? God doesn't intervene in a way that we expect him to, does he? No, the redemption of Israel begins with something so ordinary, taking place in the midst of slavery and chaos and pain. That's how he intervenes. Now, brothers and sisters, you might be going through a horrible ordeal. And you might be praying that God would intervene and make it all go away. But instead, you know, he might bring you an ordinary friend, a church member, a brother, or a sister, to tell you hard things, perhaps things you don't want to hear, to help you endure suffering, to encourage you to cling to Christ, to fulfill his redeeming purposes in you. Because God knows what you need. He knows how to intervene. Just look at the ordinary way the birth of Moses is described. A man has a desire to get married. Nothing spectacular about that. 
you know, he pursues that desire. He marries a woman from his own tribe. The writer tells us that uh, she was from, they were both from the tribe of Levi. But just the very mention of Levi, that name should cause you to hear the sweet melody of God's sovereign grace against and over all those cries of suffering. Because friends, Levi, if you remember, was one of the sons of Jacob. You know, he was a very angry and violent man. He goes on a killing spree and plunders an entire city in Genesis 34. His father Jacob even curses him for his anger. And yet later we will see by God's sovereign choosing, the descendants of Levi will serve God as priests for his people. Friends, the point is that these are two ordinary sinners from whom will come a redeemer who will also be a priest and mediator. But Israel's Redeemer, Israel's Savior, is born not in pomp and grandeur. No, he's born in obscurity. That's all that is said about Moses' heritage, his circumstances. I hope you are beginning to see God's divine fingerprints here. Look at verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, every Israelite would have seen their child as a covenantal blessing from the Lord. You know, a son is born. And his mother notices something special about this child. The text says, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, does that mean if he was not a fine child, she would have not protected him? No, that's not what it means. When Stephen mentions Moses' birth in Acts 7, verse 20, he says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Some of the translations say when his mother saw that he was fair or beautiful, or the King James Version says proper. Maybe the King James translators thought that Moses' mother was British. I don't know what's going on there, but that's what it says. In, in verse 2, if you look at the Hebrew text, in verse 2, the word child does not appear. It simply says that she saw that he was thov, good. Friends, do you hear the echoes of something? Where do you hear of things being brought to life and then a seeing and then a pronouncement that they were good? Genesis 1, isn't it? God creates, he sees, and he declares it to be good. This offspring of the woman, this son is recognized by his mother as good. God's approval rests on this child as it did on his original good creation. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying. This child was a gift and blessing, an appearance of the goodness of God to deliver his people. And Moses' mother somehow, we don't know how, senses that. It is this recognition combined with her maternal instincts that causes her to hide the child. It was an action done in faith, trusting in the Lord's covenantal promises that he would fulfill those promises through this child. How can we be sure of that? Well, listen to Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They feared the Lord. They trusted in his promises when they saw that the child was good. But that language of describing Israel's future redeemer as good not only reminds us of the creation account, but it also prepares us for another creative work that God will do through Moses. You see, just as God 
in the midst of darkness and chaos. Think about Genesis 1. Separated the waters from the land and created his people. So too now, through his mediator, God would bring about another work. He would separate the waters of the Red Sea, deliver his people, take them onto dry land, and form them into a people for his own possession. But it was all going to start with one man, Moses. The birth and the deliverance of Moses is the token. It is the pattern of Israel's deliverance. This saving of Moses is a foreshadowing of the salvation of Israel as a whole. Now, as you can imagine, it's not easy to hide a baby. Pretty soon your whole house will start smelling like one, and you can only do so much with a crying baby. You know, Moses' mother soon realizes, you know, I need to get this baby out of the house. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Interesting, isn't it? This is the river Nile that the writer is talking about. We're told that she builds this basket about, of bulrushes and papyrus reeds. You know, these would have been common, available in plenty. But not only does she make this basket, but the writer is very keen to point out to us that she covered it with bitumen and pitch, tar-like substances that are used to fill cracks and make the surface waterproof. You know, Moses' mom crafts this basket to make sure that her son will not drown when placed in the water. Now that word that is translated as basket and stated twice in this story is the word that appears in the New Testament and is translated in the Old Testament, sorry, and is translated as ark, thewa. It's the word that is used to describe the ark that Noah built. You remember Noah builds the ark and in Genesis 6.14 he is instructed to cover it inside and outside with pitch. You see what's happening here? Moses is being portrayed as the new Noah. He, as he goes through the waters in an ark sealed with pitch so that he can save the people of God from an evil generation of Egyptians. You know, God fulfills his promises to the patriarchs to redeem his people, bring them to a good land by sending and preserving a helpless child. It is a child, a son, one who is born just at the right time and preserved by God himself who will redeem his people. But notice the unfolding of events and how the Lord protects the future redeemer of Israel in surprising ways. First of all, note that Moses' mom is really sneaky. Where has she put the baby? In the Nile. You know, that basket is not floating down the mighty river attracting crocodiles. No, it's very cleverly positioned among the reeds in the Nile by the bank. So if the Egyptians come asking, I heard you had a baby boy, Pharaoh commands that you cast him into the Nile, what do you think Moses' mama would have said? By golly, that's exactly what I did. I, I cast him in the Nile. Actually, all the women in, in this story are quite sneaky. Not only does Moses' mother put him there, but she stations her daughter to watch him. Look at verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. She stands watching. Now, we don't know what exactly the plan is here. Is he supposed to be there till nightfall and then they take him home? Uh, the text doesn't say. 
But something unexpected happens. Someone who was not supposed to be there that day ends up being there. Of all the days, Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of Mr. Psychopath himself, (laughs) decides, I'm not going to bathe in the royal bathtub today. I'm going to bathe in the Nile, the Blessed River. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. She saw, she sent, and she took. Boy, that happened pretty quickly, didn't it? I mean, you can almost picture the horror, the horror on Moses' sister's face. I mean, these were the Egyptians, and not just any Egyptians. This was Pharaoh's daughter herself. Surely Moses was done for. But instead, Moses' sister learned that day that the God who promises to redeem his people also has the power to change people's hearts through the deliverer he provides. Look at verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold... The baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Notice how the writer draws attention to the fact that the baby was crying. It was this crying that moved Pharaoh's daughter to have compassion. Unlike her merciless father, she doesn't want to be cruel, but she sees that there's something about this child and it stirs her heart. And Moses' sister looks at that way that the princess looks at her baby brother and she recognizes that look. And so she casually stumbles upon the scene and offers some wisdom. Look at verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Moses' sister just pretends like she's there for a stroll, walking along the Nile just another day. She sees the princess and she says, Wow, your highness, your baby's so beautiful. Oh, no, he's, he's not my baby. I just found him. Looks like a Hebrew baby boy. Well, he looks like a hungry Hebrew baby boy with all that noise he's making. You know what? I actually know a Hebrew woman, a a wet nurse, really good with babies. Me and her, we go back a long way. (laughs) If you want, I can get her right away, she she says. And Pharaoh's daughter likes that idea. Go, she says. Look at verse 8. And guess who the sneaky sister gets? Moses' own mother. Look at verses 8 to 9. So the girl went... And called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, don't miss this. Pharaoh has failed to kill the most important Hebrew baby boy, and his own daughter is responsible for thwarting his fa- her father's plans. And not only has she done that, but she has demonstrated by her actions that she did not fear his edict, just like those midwives and just like Moses' parents. God's providential care of his appointed deliverer is so astonishing and jaw-dropping that we can only say with Daniel that God does all according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Notice the sweet irony in this account. Moses' own mother gets paid to nurse her own child. Boy, that's a sweet deal, isn't it? (laughs) 
But it's also pointing to the day, friends, when after the plagues are over, God will give the Israelites favor in the eyes of the very same Egyptians. And they will plunder the Egyptians. They will get all that they, they need. And so we see here in the story that the child who was once threatened by the palace now enjoys the protection of the palace. He gets to spend his early years with his own people, being brought up and raised by his own parents, being told about the God of Israel. But pretty soon, Moses' mother's nursing contract comes to an end, as agreed upon. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She adopted him and gave him a name. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word Moses in ancient Egyptian meant the son. There were many who were named Ah Moses, meaning the son of Ah. But Moses sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out. And so this is a play on words that the inspired writer introduces us to. And in doing so, sort of sets the stage for Moses' redeeming, redeeming work. The one who was drawn out of the water will one day soon draw Israel through the waters of the Red Sea and out of Egypt. Friends, I hope you see how God was present in every act of Moses' preservation, displaying his wisdom and power to thwart any evil design or effort to hinder his redemptive plan for his people. And that, beloved, should give us great faith and great hope in seemingly hopeless circumstances. I mean, how can you miss it in this passage? The Lord cares for his people. When evil was at its peak, God was working his salvation plans for his people. And brothers, let me tell you, God was behind that Levite man marrying that particular Levite woman. God was the one who was sovereign over her conception. God was the one who sustained her pregnancy. God is the one who was at work in Moses' mother's mind to put him in a little ark so that his people would one day see who this child really was when they heard of his birth story. God is the one who kept that basket from floating away. God is the one who put it into Pharaoh's daughter's head to go to the Nile that day, to that very spot. And God was the one who was sovereign over the timing of Moses' cry. God was perfectly orchestrating every detail. This was his wise and powerful providential care. And all of it, all of it works for the redeeming purposes of his people. And brothers, this is the way we ought to think about our Christian lives before him in this world. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. And friends, that good may not include rescue from trial, but it will certainly include the Christ-glorifying goodness of a transformed life. That good may not include healing from sickness. It may lead to death, but it will certainly include the goodness and the joy of being in Christ's presence and the goodness of a resurrection from the dead. You know, Moses' mother would have prayed how she would have prayed. But she didn't get to keep her son, did she? But she got to see his life spared. And she, got the, she had the joy of watching God's redemptive purposes being played out. Well, friends, we ought to keep our eyes on our Redeemer. Because Moses points us to a greater Moses, a greater son, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate 
Jesus entered our sinful world to redeem us from our captivity to sin so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is the goodness of God incarnate. He is the favor of God in human flesh. And he appeared just at the right time to save us, not from an oppressive regime, but from something far more darker and far more sinister. He appeared to save us from our own sin, our rebellion against a good and holy God who made us. Brothers and sisters, unless you see your sin, your wickedness as a greater evil than all of the pharaohs in this world put together, unless you see the wrath of God and his eternal punishment more severe and more frightening than any trial, you're not going to find joy in the salvation that Jesus Christ provides, in the redemption that he has accomplished. And you will find even the smallest trial to be greater than you can bear. This Jesus appeared to save us from God's wrath, to save us from an eternal destruction. This is what the story of Exodus sets us up to anticipate. It teaches us to anticipate our Lord Jesus who came to fulfill all the promises in the Old Testament because he is that promised offspring in whom we receive the blessing that was promised to Abraham. This Jesus went to the cross and he died in the place of sinners and he rose from the dead on the third day so that those who repent of their sins and put their trust in him may not perish but be freed from their slavery to sin so that they may be forgiven and made right before God. He rose to newness of life so that we can be given new hearts and new eyes to see that he is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over Pharaoh, over evil, and over Satan. We see that at his birth, don't we? When Herod decrees the killing of all the newborn baby boys at Jesus' birth, we see God protect his son. He sends him into Egypt just as he did Israel. And then he calls him out of Egypt, just like he did Israel. Just as he calls his national son out of Egypt, now he calls his very own son out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son, Matthew records for us, quoting Hosea. You see, Jesus in his person and his, in his work is reenacting, repeating, recapitulating the experience of Israel. That's what's happening and we see God's providence at his crucifixion, don't we? When evil seems to be doing its worst, we're told in Isaiah 53 verse 10 and Acts 2.23 that God did that. God ordained that. This was his providential ordering. Brothers and sisters, if God did that, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, oh, how will he not graciously give us all things. And by all things, I mean the kind of things that Paul talks about in Romans 8.35. Whether that is tribulation or persecution, sickness or danger, he means anything that is necessary or needful to complete the work of redemption in us. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that's true, don't you? I mean, how often have we been able to look back at a job loss or a sickness or a terrible tragedy and have been able to say, if not for that experience, I would have never come to trust God as I do now. 
If not for that period of affliction, I would have not grown as a Christian. If not for that horrible employer, I would have not seen how angry, how bitter, how slanderous I can truly be. God put me in that situation so that I could see that, so that I could see my sin and plead with God that he would produce in me a patience and kindness. Friends, what are you going through this morning? How is your heart doing in these situations? What is God revealing to you about your sin, about what your heart really desires and worships more than anything? If you can see your unbelief, your worry, your anxiety, your fears, your anger, then friends, rejoice because God has providentially used these situations to show you what you need. So take those cares to the Savior He has provided. Can you not see how he providentially works all things to point you to his son? Don't you see how relentless he is to see you sanctified and glorified? Can you not see how Calvin was able to say, Thou, O Lord, thou bruises me. It is enough for me to know that it is your hand. So brothers and sisters, don't look at your hard circumstances as people who are subject to fate or luck or chance, but attribute them to a sovereign Savior who loves you and who has ordained every situation, every trial, every loss, even every harm done to you for the relentless and unstoppable work of your Savior in you. In all these things, we are more much more than conquerors through him who loved us.